We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today we have a very special guest and episode. My dear friend, artist, and our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle, is here to tell us all about her new, exciting classic movie collective Patreon, the Fifth Avenue Anti-Stuff Shirt and Flying Trapeze Club, which hosts the work of a number of excellent female creative writers, artists, and more that you can support all at once. Kate, welcome. How did you come up with such a marvelous idea for the Patreon and how's it going so far? Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, I came up with the idea for the Patreon because um, I noticed that there's been a huge increase in the amount of creative people who are starting Patreons and Substacks. And we all seem to be doing our own independent freelance work where we're asking people for a dollar a month to support mm-hmm. our page. And that there is probably a cap on how many individual creators people want to support. So, yeah. um, you know, you're not going to be supporting like 30 people, but you might love 30 people's work. Um, You might follow a ton of creative people that you really love, but you just can't afford to be paying each of those people $1, $2, $3 a month. Um, So I thought that maybe it would be a good idea to join up with some other creative women that I, um, whose work I appreciate and get together and make one collective Patreon. So people who love all of our work, they can, um, pledge $3 a month and that gets split 10 ways or 11 ways. Yes. Um, you know, instead of, instead of, you know, having to give each of us $1 and then that would be say 11 or, you know, we also have, we do have, um, tiers for paying more than $3 a month. You can pledge 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. and you get, um, increased perks for that. But, um, I wanted it to be accessible where people could pledge a small amount of money and know that you're in some way supporting a bunch of creative women who um, a lot of times don't get paid for the work that they put out. You know, like um, a a lot of us do work that we share for free online or um, with, with writing, it can be really difficult. People post on their blogs uh, and hope people click on it and then click on an ad maybe, but like you might not be getting paid for that writing. And this is a way to generate income from the content that we're sharing. Exactly. No, that is a wonderful, 
wonderful idea. And you raise a lot of really good points because especially with writing or even art, music, all the different people that you have. I mean, some of these, like for me, writing a review that people read in five or 10 minutes can take days to work on mm-hmm. and lots of research. And I don't think people realize the amount of work that goes into something like that. And so it's great that you are giving a home to this great content. I love all of the pieces that I've seen so far and I'm really proud to support you guys. I wanted to join in of course, but I don't have time right now. So I thought this was the best way for me to support all of you and help spread the word. So I appreciate it so much. Oh, of course. Well, in this episode, you'll be hearing from a handful of the Patreon's contributors about both the collective as well as a classic movie of their choice that exemplifies the independent or artistic spirit of a woman being creative. You've chosen a film that means an awful lot to you personally, perhaps because it's about an artist named Kate. (laughs) So, Kate, what can you tell us about A Stolen Life? Um, A Stolen Life is one of my favorite movies. Um, It probably would be even if she wasn't an artist named Kate, but um, it does help. (laughs) It's so entertaining, Um, yes. It features Betty Davis in a starring role as an artist named Kate and also her twin sister, Patricia. Mm -hmm. Um, So she plays both roles. And um, they both have their eyes set on a lighthouse keeper played by Glenn Ford. Because who Um, Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Um, It's so funny when I watch this movie, I know that Betty Davis is playing both roles, but she is so good that for some reason, when I think about the movie, I think Betty Davis plays Kate and someone else is playing Patricia. (laughs) It is Um, so different. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll think like, oh, I hate the way Patricia treats Betty Davis in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) You Um, tell her Betty Davis and then. Yeah. (laughs) She's just so good. And I think part of it is that they set up the movie where you get to know Kate first. Um, For a and while. You, yeah, you spend a lot of the movie with her before you even know that she has a twin sister. Mm-hmm. And so by the time she's introduced, you're already, um, you like the character. You really sympathize with her and you're like, who is this other person? Yeah, um, you know, why is, she, <laughs> why is she cutting in and messing things up for Kate? So um you know, I, I, I don't want to give too much more detail about the plot because some things happen, sure. uh, you know, later on that um, might be shocking if you haven't, if you don't know much about the movie and haven't seen it before. And I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's, uh, it's a very dramatic movie um, and it takes place like, I, oh my gosh, where does it take place? Is it in Maine? I just watched it. I believe I think so. it's Maine. Um, uh, it's, New England, yeah. we'll just say. Yeah. yeah, New England. It's it's very salty and, you know, there's a lot of sweaters and it, yes. it has really great atmosphere. There's a scene where they're on the light at the top of the lighthouse. It's foggy and they're talking about how it just feels like the end of the world up there. It's beautiful. I love the cinematography. I love the plot. I love every every single person in it. I think it's cast perfectly. Walter Brennan plays like a crabby old lighthouse so keeper. Yeah. He's fantastic. Um, and, he makes uh, every movie better, I think. Yep. Yes. Char- uh, Charlie Ruggles playing her, um, I think, uncle, who yeah. must have been uh, been sort of taking care of her and her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think I think he, I get the impression that he raised them. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, and they, he's just yeah. such a darling, delightful, wonderful person in this movie. I love him. Yes, um, and Dane Dane Clark yes. is. Oh, yeah. I always almost say Dane Cook too. <laughs> I know. I'm like That's the wrong guy. That'd be a bad. Yeah. Yeah. That would bring the movie down. No, I'm no no offense, Dane, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah Dane, Dane Clark. Yeah, he's yeah. he's Different a big part Dane. of. Yes, uh, he's a big part of the part of this movie that makes it a topic of discussion for this category of creative women in film yeah. that um, uh, Kate is an artist and um, struggling. And yeah. She, I mean, she's wealthy, but as a creative person, she struggles. So she yes. is, she's able to get a gallery show in the movie, which is probably because she's well-connected through her family. Mm-hmm. Um, but as someone who creates she's not confident in her artwork and dane clark picks up on that and honestly belittles her um and in i i have a lot of problems with his character um as Mm -hmm. somebody who is creative and struggles a lot with self-confidence the way that he treats her bothers me so much in this movie it's Um, manipulative i think it is yeah, because then he comes on to her like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, like you're not taking, good, but I'll teach you. And you yeah. Know. And yeah. really taking advantage of her insecurity, yep. um, knowing that she doesn't have that much confidence mm-hmm. and um, and and it's he's so arrogant and self-important. And, and it bothers me when he takes her to his studio and shows her his work and uh, this time around, I was really trying to actually look at the artwork that they put in this movie that is supposed to be created by each person. So mm-hmm. um, when they do the the gallery show, it's a lot of uh, still life and um, like just scenes of like uh, stacks of hay and people, uh, portraits, things like that. It's traditional um, yeah. completed completed paintings and they're good. I think they're good. Yes. Um, and then when you go to his studio and he has a lot of rough sketches of things that seem to be works in progress. I didn't yeah. notice any actual like complete. Yeah. 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 It didn't look like completed work um, where you'd be like, wow, this guy is amazing. But yeah. she acts like he he's a genius. She's like, I've seen enough. Um, this is amazing. Yeah. I'm and, gonna quit. Yeah. No. Yeah. Or, I mean, she doesn't quit then yet. No, um, that's but, what, yeah. but definitely, I'm sure that's when the wheels start turning for her, that she's yeah. not good enough. His work is so much better. And it really isn't. It's um, it's all, you know, rough sketches of things. And it just bothers me that, to me, I don't, like, I don't know if it's on purpose, especially because technically the art isn't, like, the main plot of the movie but um so I don't know how much thought they put into this but like to me just the fact that she uh, so many people in this movie put her down and say mean things to her and not just about her art but about her appearance and um her being too plain and oh I'm sorry but like to go back to Glenn Ford um yeah that he has Mm -hmm. this line where he says to her sister when he meets her that he, okay, wait, I need to rewind a little bit and say her sister pretends to be Kate yes. at one point. Yeah. And 
and tricks Glenn Ford and goes to lunch with him. And he thinks he's with Kate the whole time. And um, mm-hmm. he's so enamored with her after lunch. And he's like, there's just something different about you. It's like you're a cake and you Frosting. weren't frosted. Yeah, you weren't frosted before and now you're frosted. And it's so heartbreaking. I, yeah. I, I just, it's crushing when he says that. And it, oh, I don't even have words for how upsetting that line is. It's just, it's so sad. And um, there's so many points in the movie where that's, that sort of thing is actually said to her. Mm-hmm. Um, it, not just about her, like people literally will just say to her, like, he doesn't love you. Um, yes. you know, like he never loved you, like uh, just so crushing. And, um, you know, for her to, ha- I'm, I'm getting into spoilers, but for her to have to be at their wedding and like, oh, um, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like later on, he takes her shopping to buy presents for Pat's birthday and they're twins. And he's like, oh, that's uh, it's your birthday too. And it's the lingerie yeah. department, which makes it yes. worse. Like, oh hold my this gosh. up to you because it's, I'm going to, I'm going to spoil it, but yeah, it's a negligee. So then it's like, she has to imagine her sister wearing this when they're intimate. It's like, come yes. on, Glenn Ford, get with it. Yes. It, it's so cruel. And like, I mean, it's, de- he definitely is absent-minded about it. He's, he doesn't realize yeah. it's not like he, he's not it's being not intentionally like cruel. Whatever that guy's name is, Karnick, uh, played by yeah. James Clark. Not Cook. Yeah, he, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's like just outright cruel, but yeah. Glenn Ford is just this oblivious mm-hmm. doof who just does not know any better and does not seem to understand that Kate was so in love with him. And, um, it's it's just heartbreaking, but um. But anyway, so my my point was, people are just putting her down and saying mean things to her all the time, and then I feel like all of that has to have been building up in her brain to the point where when she sees the work of this other artist who's saying she's not good enough, she's like, yes, just fine, I'm not good enough. This is amazing work. You're right. Like she's just so conditioned to believe that she's lesser. Yep. And. And when she sees his work, it's like, all right, fine, this is better. And so then it, um, I think like maybe the next scene is them working together in the studio and mm-hmm. um, they are working off of a model and he comes over and looks at her work and just starts tearing it apart and like trying to tell her that the, the arm that she drew looks horrible. And he takes charcoal and just starts drawing on her drawing. I know. Oh my God. I, like, <laughs> you have like a physical reaction to that. Like, what yes. are you doing? It's almost like in Little Women when the sister burns the manuscript. It's like you yes. just want to reach in the TV and yeah, it's bad. It's so upsetting. And it is. I, I also, as somebody who draws the idea of somebody just coming over and drawing on my drawing, it's like, no, don't do, don't do I know. that. Well, if anyone I, does that, uh, call me. I'll, I'll <laughs> No, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Of course, but but no. I I love that that we get that one moment of like um what the audience probably wants somebody to say where the model is like I'm leaving this is ridiculous yeah stop tre- stop treating her this way I liked it better before he was here working with us <laughs> you know. know like I'm just leaving and I I like that you have like an outsider's opinion of that situation where 
it's it's not just him saying I'm such a great artist and Betty Davis who has this like diminished yep. view of herself say, saying yes that must be true you have someone being like no you were fine without this guy what are you doing <laughs> yeah <laughs> this guy's you a know. disaster yeah yeah I think we can all relate to that, especially uh, female creatives. There are wonderful, supportive men in the arts, of course, but we've all had that experience, I think, where um, <laughs> men are the ones that usually are given staff positions or that kind of thing. I've had that same experience with dating. I've found that um, as much as I love male writers, I've had the worst luck ever getting <laughs> involved with male writers. So I'm always like, yeah. if they're writers, they have to do something completely different than what I'm doing because, you know, competitiveness or I completely um, agree. Pettiness gets into that. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Candace Frederick about that recently, because we were talking about Burger from Sex in the City, who breaks up with her on a post-it and how bad uh, it was. I remember that. Yes, yes, because he was a writer and she was a writer. And I said, you know, that's just why I, as a rule, have had trouble with writers. And she said, yeah, I, I stay away from writers and artists. And, you yeah. know, I've had better luck with like musicians or people that do other things. But, and I'm not putting down there some great male writers. Some of my best friends are male writers who are so supportive. But as a rule, when you watch this movie, you can totally relate. We've all had these experiences. And so yeah. it cuts really close to the bone in places. And I think that's why you're just so with Betty Davis. Had you seen the original? Because I guess this was a remake of a 1939 British film with Elizabeth Bergner and Michael Redgrave that I've never seen. I didn't even know that. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I kind of want to check it out now. I'm curious. Yeah, and me also, too. Yeah, and I guess it says the second time that Betty Davis played Twin Sisters after this was in Dead Ringer in 1964. Mm -hmm. Did you see I love that, that movie. Yes, you know, that's good. I think Paul Enright actually directed that. Did he really? I have not yeah. seen that one. So I've got two now that I need to see after A Stolen Life. Yes. Yeah, that, I like that, that one. I, I also, when I was watching this um, to prepare for talking to you, I was reminded, uh, in especially the scene I'm talking about where uh, he takes her to his studio to look at his work. Yeah. I was reminded of um, Pollock, which we discussed in the Ed Harris episode. Yeah. Um, where they're oh, Marsha um, Gay Harden. Yeah. That's yeah. Scene. And, and how similar it was where even though she also did work um, so much of the movie is focused on Pollock's work. And even in her own lifetime, a lot of her um, time was spent with his legacy Mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to make sure that he was remembered and preserving his work and things like that. And um, it's a shame, I feel like, because I think she did good work. Um, she really did. And, yeah. And it's the same sort of thing with this movie where, especially for the time period, and it's a sort of, I mean, this movie takes place, I guess, a little bit before um, but no, actually, this might have, this would have been about the same time that Pollock uh, was, working. was actually yeah. working. Yeah. And it's probably a very similar dynamic where as soon as um, two creative people in the same field were together, you know, the man automatically was just considered the one who was yeah. better. He usurped and, the role. Yep. Yeah. And I just, it just made me sad thinking there was like this real life um, parallel that 
you yeah, know, very we, we had talked about recently and it just, oh, it was just sad um, yeah. that this sort of thing probably did happen actually a lot in real life Quite and still does. Like you said, um, you know, it's still an issue for women <laughs> yes. that, you know, your work is belittled by mm-hmm. men who think that they're better. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, not, not always, but of um, course not, but yeah, (laughs) but yes, we've always been there. Of course. It it makes me, it makes me so sad though, that in this movie, she actually does. And she does decide to give up um, at Mm -hmm. some point in the movie and says, she's just not going to work anymore. But um, I personally have hope they don't say it, but I have hope that at the end of the movie, she's going to start again because it ends with the voiceover of Glenn Ford saying um, as she's walking on this like cliff that this is his favorite spot to come to. And he wishes it could be captured in a painting. And like, does she think that she would be able to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, do you like, he's like, do you, you know, do you think you could capture the beauty of this place? And she's like, you know, just sort of th- in lost in thought walking. Um, mm-hmm. And I like to think that as she's thinking about that, that she's thinking like, I'm going to paint this place, you know, like I am going to paint again. Yeah. That's my own interpretation. (laughs) I I agree with you. I think that's kind of what they were setting up. Like she's, I think because she quote unquote, again, with the spoilers, but it's, she finds her voice, so to speak, Mm -hmm. by the end of the movie. I guess it's not too spoilery that she might find it artistically as well. Yes. Yeah. I completely I agree. So. Yeah. So I think that is kind of a positive spin and a, a good way to look at the ending. I like that they didn't have to, you know, drive it home. They just trusted that, you know, we're going to think that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the actors are just so great. I guess it was nominated for best special effects because i mean you would need those special effects yes i love the reveal like we followed kate for a good chunk of the beginning of the movie is just us following kate around and she meets going forward and then when she comes home she's still on that high when you you know come home from a date or just having spent time with someone you're attracted to you're like buzzing and she's sitting down and then all of a sudden you know it's like cold water is thrown on her basically I mean you know metaphorically by the reveal of the sister in a different chair and you don't even see her right away you just kind of hear a voice where she questions Mm -hmm. her and then when it is revealed that oh my god she has a twin sister you you know this movie just took a total turn so yeah that's great (laughs) yeah it's a different spin on the woman's weepy of the 40s and I think it's a clever one yeah it's so unique and honestly like one of the biggest twists in the movie doesn't happen until almost the end it's very very like like you said the the twin part doesn't even come in for a while and then there's yet another twist that happens yes um almost an hour in maybe it's um it's a movie that constant if you've seen if you haven't seen it before is like surprising you left and right <laughs> yeah it's the dark uh side of like the parent trap let's just say there's there's a twin yeah. thing that happens and you're like whoa <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes so, i like no, that spin on it yeah i was so <laughs> excited to revisit this because it had been quite a long time and i had just talked uh to nikki dolson recently in our westerns episode about glenn ford when we rewatched uh three to Yuma and we both kind of were like 
insanely attracted to Glenn Ford and that. And then, you know, you watch this movie and you're like, yeah, Glenn really had it going on. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. I actually didn't like him when I first started watching classic movies. Um, He was one that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that honestly, it was like, I had, I think I had watched Gilda when I was really younger and um, wasn't a huge fan of his in the movie. I had to, honestly, I was probably like 13 or 14 and, um, and that one movie just sort of made me like, "Eh, I'm not sure about Glenn Ford. And I just wasn't really watching any of his films. Mm -hmm. And then I had a dream about him when I was like, maybe like 20 or 21. (laughs) And, and I woke up and I was like, huh, maybe I should watch a Glenn Ford movie. And I did. (laughs) And I was like, wait, I like Glenn Ford. (laughs) What's going on? When did that happen? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and, and I've liked him ever since it's weird how your brain can just sort of like be like, no, let's reconsider. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But when um, he sneaks up on you. Yes. Yeah. I, I think I especially like Glenn Ford actually like a little bit later. I love him in the sixties in like the yeah. courtship of Eddie's father and dear heart is my dear heart is one of my absolute favorite movies. And if anyone out there listening to this has not seen it yet or heard of it, please go watch it. It is just one of <laughs> the most delightful, sweet, good-hearted movies. And it'll just make you feel like good about humanity. It's, it is a sweet one. Yeah. 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 And so underrated. Like, so I feel like very few people seem to like know about it and like it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I, all the time on Twitter, I'm seeing people who are like, oh my God, I watched Dear Heart for the first time finally. And like, how was I sleeping on this movie? It is just, <laughs> you know, s- such a sweet, sweet movie. I love it when that happens. Like recently, yeah. Dogfight. I've been a huge Dogfight fan for years. And then recently it was part of the TCM Film Fest uh, hub mm-hmm. on I think it also played on TCM, but it was on HBO Max and like people started watching it. Jessica Pickens became very obsessed and was watching it multiple mm-hmm. times in a week. And then yeah. other people caught on and I'm like, finally, there are some dogfight people out there. It's such a good movie. <laughs> so yeah, I love it when that happens. Very cool. Yeah, it's fun when like your favorite underrated films finally get some attention. Yes, Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you chose this one. Is there anything else you'd like to tell everyone about this film? Um, I think that's it. Just, you know, um, it's available to rent on Amazon if you want to watch it. And um, I hope you do. It's a just very nice little movie. And it's one that um, I like to watch when I'm either like sick or not feeling great. It's a nice like comfort movie where you turn it on and feel wrapped up in it. And it's like a little you know, salty ocean air blanket. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes. Everybody go check that out and then look up the Fifth Avenue Anti-Stuff Shirt and Flying Trapeze Club on Patreon. Well, next we have a very witty, clever, and highly original writer, Meg Hesketh, who you can now normally find on cinema or whatever.com, but now contributes a delightful monthly column to the Classic Film Collective as well. Meg, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? And how do you like writing for the Collective Patreon? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jen. I'm so genuinely excited to be a part of your podcast because you always have so many cool people on that I love. And then I'm like, oh, oh. my gosh. So I'm, <laughs> I love to be here. I love writing for the Collective. I think it's such a cool idea. I was really honored to be invited to join it. I mean, it's an incredible group of women 
And mm-hmm. which I, in my experience, I've been online with classic films since I was like 12, you know, and my oh, experience of classic film community online is very woman dominated. And yeah, yeah, that was always been my experience with blogs, with Twitter, with Tumblr, of course, all those kinds of things. And I do feel like the conversation often does tend to some of the old, like the male canon classics of this is how we discuss film. (laughs) And that was never my experience as like a teen coming up reading stuff. And so I do love that this Patreon's kind of solidified a little bit of you know, women are kind of really running the conversation about classic film. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a stellar lineup and I've loved your pieces so far. They've been really entertaining. (laughs) I've been enjoying them so much. So I can't wait to see what you write this month. It'll probably be up by the time this goes up. So look for that, everyone. But before we begin to talk about movies, I understand you're something of a Bob Dylan fan. I am. I know. I'm so excited. (laughs) Obviously, I'm a big fan. I hang out with him every day uh, via the photo on the dry erase board behind me for those, obviously, who have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, I actually have a poster of him right out of your view right now. Really? Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't not ask you, what is your favorite Bob Dylan album? I know. You know, it's funny as I was thinking about this the other day because it was recently his 80th birthday and I was like... I feel like this is maybe a cliche, but the Free Will and Bob Dylan is That's my favorite, favorite album. I love all of his work, honestly. Mm-hmm. I'm not someone who's like, this period is good and this period is bad. <laughs> I even loved his, I loved his most recent album. But um, when I was a kid, it was a very uh, restrictive amount of content, uh, music, everything that we were allowed to partake in. And for some reason, Bob Dylan's 60s folk albums were like allowed, which is very fun. Um, And so I always kind of credit freewheeling Bob Dylan as a bit of my like positive radicalizing as a child. So even a child, me in the early 2000s was like, what? These ideas are so unusual. (laughs) So I, I love the album. I love the makes me happy. It is such a good album. Mm-hmm. I always feel like a cliche because my favorite is Highway 61 Revisited. Oh. And so I say that <laughs> and people are like, of course, you know, mm-hmm. like, come on, Jen. But I have other favorites, of course. Of course, I, I know. celebrate his entire catalog, as they say in Office Space. But, you know, yeah, yeah how can you not? So Yeah, I mean, people try to get all like, no, 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 you need to name like three very... Um, rare tracks, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then you're a real fan. But I'm like, I'm sorry. Highway Swan Revisited is magnificent. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be your favorite? I know. and um, then It's iconic to, for a reason. Yeah. And I think sometimes we have different phases and like, mm. you know, like you have a bad breakup. You're like blood on the tracks, man. That's <laughs> the best. Or um, you're like in your contemplative blonde on blonde phase or whatever it is. But yeah. Yeah. I always like, I can see myself when I was 16 on the bus listening to like, don't think twice. It's all right. Like staring out the window and, in, you know, in your mind, you're like 16, you're like, this is the movie of my life. And this is its soundtrack. So yeah. I feel like Bob Dylan pops up a lot in those, um, in those mental- chapters of me considering myself. Yeah. Yeah. As the main character of your own. Well, I think we are all the main characters. Oh, of course. Of and what a great soundtrack. Exactly. Perfect. And yeah, Bob Dylan soundtracks is all. I love it. <laughs> yeah, perfect. 
Well, for your film today, you chose a hidden gem from 1943, a title (laughs) that's relatively hard to find, but it sounds so entertaining. Mm. Plus, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound Recording. So please tell us more about director Frank Borzaghi's His Butler Sister, starring Deanna Durbin. Yes, I know. I Okay, I love this film. And the second I chose it, and you were like, this is not really available anywhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know. That's, That's okay. what's so It'll terrible about this. It'll make people hunt it down. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it should be released. But I mean, yeah, it can be found online. But um, I actually tend to watch it on VHS. Um, oh, cool. Deanna Durbin is, was my original favorite. As a kid, uh, her first film, Three Smart Girls, is the first film oh, I can I love like, that movie. cognitively yeah. remember oh, having really? seen. Yeah, wow. I was, was like five or six, and I was like, this is a movie. I love her. She's cool. And unfortunately, a lot of her films are not available on DVD, but mm-hmm. they were all released on VHS, officially got the full treatment, and they were in my public library system, all of her oh, VHSs. Wow. And they would be on a shelf and they all had her signature on the spine. So you, I would see them, you know. And so I watched all of her films, you know, probably before the age of 10, I had seen them all because they were available. Oh, and this so would have cool. been, you know, just, yeah, less than 20 years ago. And now it's gone again. But um, so this one was one of my favorites. And it's it's a f- one of her adult kind of films because she started out as this teen mm-hmm. star with three smart girls and this incorrigible presence, which of course I loved as a kid too. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But in this film, she plays um, this character who's traveling to the big city, to New York city from her mm-hmm. home. And I cannot in my mind think of right now where she's from. I think it's like Iowa. It might be Indiana. It's one of the eyes in the middle of the country. <laughs> and um, as I say this, I'm forgetting the name of the actor. You probably have this written down who plays your brother, um, Pat. Uh, uh, was that so, O'Brien? No. Yes, thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't have it written down, but I was like, Pat O'Brien. <laughs> Pat, yeah, no, Pat O'Brien is playing her brother and he has like sent her money before and he's really made out that he's this big shot in the city and this is his address if she ever wants to mail him a letter so she just shows up unawares without contacting him and she's like I'm ready to make it big with my big brother um (laughs) he's actually the butler of oh gotcha okay the money had sent her was not because he was rich and he works for Franchot Tone who of course is like you know, a music writer works mm-hmm. in Broadway, exactly what she wants to be doing. So it's very fun. And of course they have like, there is these like romantic elements, but what I love about it and what I feel like it showcased about Deanna Durbin is um, she had these films, this and because of him is another one, which is more readily available. Okay. Um, and where she played these characters who just, who had this talent for singing, for acting, and wanted to have this career in this creative profession, um, but are working class and mm. don't have these connections, but kind of just have this, like, I have a talent and I have a perseverance. And it oh. was just so aspirational to me as a kid. I mean, I have never had any sort of <laughs> musical or acting or any other creative aspirations, but I just loved that 
her kind of willingness to keep going always. And she's such a, she's a kind figure in her film, mm. but she's not really, a, I wouldn't say she's like nice or good. And she's definitely a very like, she is absolutely ready to con people. Mischievous, do it. Right? Yeah, very mischievous. We'll do any kind of sneaky things to get what she's looking for. But she's still at the end of the day, they're into fairness and kindness. I loved it. And which his butler's sister has like this stunning cast of supporting actors. And it's all about these kind of working class people all uniting to like, we're going to get you ahead. And we're always going to put one over on the boss who is (laughs) keeping us down. And there's just like a very fun element of that there too. I know. I love that whole era. You highly Mm. recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. Like just coming out of the depression and Mm. the working class people, like, they're going to be the ones to, yeah, to bring down the bosses or to mm-hmm. make it on their own, you know, pull up their bootstraps. I always yeah. love that about that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's yeah. such a communal thing, you know, and that's what I like about Deanna Durbin's films too, which are certainly more about happy endings and joy um, than probably realism about what it happens when you're trying to have a career in a very like a toxic often toxic industry um but the but she doesn't really have solo films you know a lot of those films that we think about about the industry are kind of about these solo figures and for Mm -hmm. her she's always in a group in a community and you know worse comes to worse she's gonna suddenly start singing opera in the middle of a scene that's the urban's thing um can't go wrong yeah can't go wrong. I mean, that was in my mind as a kid. I was always like, so if I can't figure this out, I could maybe just learn opera, start yeah. singing. My brothers really didn't like that. I would sing at them a lot and it was not, they were not a fan. <laughs> um, but I mean, I was recently rewatched because of him. And it is like, it's a film about her trying to be an actress on Broadway. She gets Charles Lawton, famous actor, to, um, she gets his signature at, like, the stage door. Little does he know, as he's off for, like, a a vacation, an extended vacation, little does he know that he's actually signed a letter of recommendation for her as, like, his new talent. Oh, so good. And there's, like, in this film, um, because, because of him, I think it's 46, and in the film, there's still, like, kind of made as a mockery but just a very like oh casting couch kind of thing it's about the producers and the mm-hmm. writers and they're just these powerful men who are like oh sure I'll find you a little job and I'll do this and just like very like Ooh. and <laughs> what's fun about it is she's just completely you know lying to everyone conning everyone causing absolute chaos completely flipping the switch mm-hmm. and rising to the top and I just love it. And she's still in the entire time. You're like, yes, please, you know, lie and cheat to everybody because yeah, we're rooting for you. You're doing it for the right reasons. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> and it's really fun to watch her with Charles Lawton. The two of them were actually very good friends, which is, ah. and they made another film together before that. It started with Eve. And you can just see Charles Lawton's delight even oh, while watching it, which is very, very cool. sweet and fun. So, Yeah. That's my, my creative lady, you know, she, I think, I feel like she's getting a bit of a resurgence lately though. You know, what's funny is I know she was known for the musical films Mm. and I've seen her in a few, but 
Lady on a Train. Is that mm. the, the name? That's the one I think was the first film I ever saw with yeah. Diana Durbin. I still love it. It's like noir and perfect. yeah, seeing her as a more of a grown up figure. Mm. So yeah, I like yeah. that. She only did like, I think two of those, right? The more serious of kind of, I mean, Lady on a Train, obviously. Lady on a Train. And there was something with Christmas in the title. Yeah. Christmas Holiday is her yes. like absolute noir with yeah. Gene Kelly. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. That was the one film I hadn't seen when I was a kid of hers. Oh, okay. It was like the one that was never available on VHS. I, know. But... I think I saw it once on TCM and yeah. I've been like searching for it ever since. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I feel like I saw it on YouTube recently, a little wink, wink. Okay. Um, <laughs> so give it hey, a Hey, I just watched <laughs> one on there yesterday. Uh, Me mm. Familia, My Family, the film from 95, which Ooh. was amazing with Jimmy Smith was like <gasps> great film not available and I'm doing a podcast on it recording yeah. this week and uh the the guy who chose it is like Jen it's on YouTube like go yeah. get it now I'm like okay yeah find out what it is oh I love that yeah a lot of times on the the classic film collective patreon will talk about we have our movie recommendations every month and a lot of times that's what I'm putting in my things. I'm like, you know, maybe try Googling YouTube for this movie. I don't know. It might be yeah. a good idea. <laughs> there um, you go. Yeah. I mean, I do absolutely support getting films oh, yes. whenever possible. But mm-hmm. some of these films are literally, they've tried to kill them. So yeah. you have to you have to keep them alive, even if that means finding a random website that you're streaming this 1943 <laughs> Deanna Durbin movie off of. <laughs> yeah, I feel better. This one, you know, it's in America. I feel mm. a little better about that. Mm. But like the one yesterday had been up since I think 2014. So something wow. tells me like the people behind it which it's American Zootrope, so Coppola, it's like, you know, mm. hey, it's not available any other way, yeah. have at it kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, that definitely does feel like that. I, I'll see that sometimes with films, which I, yeah. again, I feel like fits into this ethos of what we were just talking about with these films, you know, yeah. the community, the working class, you got to unite, yes. <laughs> take it, stick it to the bosses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, because they're just yeah. buying up studios for IP, which is, hilarious and oh, yeah that was yeah I mean that's a whole other podcast I'm sure that but it is yeah. absolute <laughs> chilling statement when yeah. I don't know if you read that thing of like Bezos is so smart and he knows exactly Oof. what makes yeah. a good story and <laughs> really chilled, chilled to my bones yeah I live in Seattle so it's Bezos land um, oh no so, yeah okay. he's probably got a drone tracking me right now yeah um, <laughs> we said his name oh no <laughs> Yeah. Him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I'm interested. I actually don't know what everyone else in my um, collective has chosen for their creative women. I can guess a couple of them, but I'm excited to listen to everyone. And yeah, I think, yeah, the ones who always the classic women that always got me were the like the hard scrabble, you know, or you know, the Barbara Stanwyck and Meet John Doe or oh, Ralph and Russell so and His fun. Girl Friday. Yes. I was like, there's no one cooler. I was like, yeah. I should be a reporter, clearly. I know. <laughs> I'm such a big fan of, of those women. I, I love Ginger Rogers. Mm. So I'm going to guess Raquel hasn't named it yet. I'm wondering <laughs> if it's Bachelor Mother. I mean, let's just say it probably will be. And I'm super, that. super stoked. Um, for Jill Blake and Mariah Gates, it was Girlfriends. Mm. And um, 
Kate is chosen. Uh, she's chosen a stolen life. Mm. So I'm excited. That, to all, that, that all checks. Yeah. That all checks. I'm yep. surprised Mariah didn't talk about um, Little Women from 94. But I know she's. Yeah, I, wow. I love but that. But she, she can that talk movie. about everything yes. at all times. So <laughs> it's good. Yeah. To go. I'm sure Raquel will choose. I mean, maybe she won't, but. Yeah. I saw Bachelor Mother because of Raquel, and I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> oh, I was a fan, and then I heard she was, and it was like, mm. Raquel, we're going to be besties. Come yeah. On. Like, this is the best. You know? yeah, yeah, I was one of the recipients of her Warner Archive collection. Oh, did she send you one? Yeah, I was well, I was staying at her house, and it was like, oh, nice. Take this gift with you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I she love buys that. them in bulk. And I know. The way of party favors, basically. It's, it's, the it's like... Yeah, I feel like that is classic film community to me. Yeah. That is such a summing up of it, of this idea of, I love this so much. It brings me joy. I want to share it, you know? Oh. Well, you are through your your pieces and from being here today. I want to thank yeah. you so much. This was oh, a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me, honestly. This was delightful. And I could talk about Deanna Deborah for eight hours. So I was glad to get to talk about her for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, of course. And you can find Meg on Twitter and your Twitter handle. Yeah, my Twitter handle is my name. So at Hesketh Meg. So it's uh, probably a little bit easier to find me under my name, the not my handle, but the name that appears above my handle, which is the Phantom Asthmatic. I love that. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. From the <laughs> experiment and tear. Um, and but yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I talk a lot about like Spanish soccer. So, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, <laughs> but if you want to read more of my writing, it's cinema or whatever.com. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, thanks yeah. again, Meg. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> well, next up, we have my friend, a very talented, passionate film fan, reading advocate and historian Raquel Stetcher who longtime listeners will undoubtedly remember hearing on these pod waves before. Raquel, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure. How are you doing and how's the spring been treating you so far? Well, thanks for having me in the spring weather. We just um, finished a heat wave and now it's a lot cooler, which makes it a lot better nice. to watch movies and read books. So that's really good. But yeah, it's been a busy spring. And I just started my summer reading challenge on my blog. So a lot of people are participating and reading classic movie books, and I'm reading classic movie books. So it's a good time. Very cool. Are there any books that have been really popular with some of your readers or ones you've read? Like, are you seeing the same books show up? Or is it just a pretty wide range of topics? Well, there's some new biographies. There's one on Jane Mansfield. There's one oh, yeah, on Jane Russell that. that I'm finishing up right now by Christina Rice. That's really good. There's awesome. a book about Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift that seems to be popular. So those are those are ones that I've noticed recently. But yeah, it kind of runs the gamut. A lot of people like to read books about film noir. Yeah. Um, people like to read biographies or genre books or fiction. So it, it varies. Very cool. Well, Speaking of your blog, I always look forward to your pieces, whether they appear on your own blog, Out of the Past, or DVD Netflix, or TCM, and beyond. And I was delighted to see your work on the Collective's Patreon. So how's the experience been for you so far? Oh, it's been so great. I, I 
I'm really honored to be among a group of really talented women who are very passionate about classic movies. And what I love about the Classic Film Collective is that everyone can contribute something completely different, whether it's a poem or maybe an original song or a video or a piece of art. Uh, I know Kiki Gabrielle does that. And then like um, everyone else does like these really thoughtful um, pieces. And that's been just really great to just be among um like-minded women um, and just to see everyone's output. And then also, and I just have free range to come up with stuff um, that I would like to do, which is really fun because then I can really tailor it to something fun and exclusive that um, is not directed by, you know, like, a, you know, uh, it's not pitched to me. It's just yeah. the creative flow can just, you know, continue and that's been really great and also a little bit of a challenge like what am I going to write this month but then it's great it's a good challenge yeah then the sky is the limit and you don't have to worry about anything being topical like oh my gosh this is opening this weekend or something exactly exactly it's not tied into programming it's not a list it's just whatever I feel like at that time and I try to make it personal too which makes it nice Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for your film today, you chose to extend the female creativity in a classic film theme to baking and business. And I personally couldn't be more thrilled to discuss this selection with you. We're talking, of course, about the Coen brothers' favorite, Mildred Pierce, in this 1945 film noir from director Michael Curtis and Based upon the 1941 novel by James M. Kane, Joan Crawford puts everything on the line for her spoiled daughter, Veda, played by Anne Blythe. The film, which garnered Crawford an Academy Award for Best Actress, marked her first starring role for Warner Brothers after she left MGM, co-starring Jack Carson, Zachary Scott, Eve Arden, and Bruce Bennett. It's a terrific classic that feels timeless as ever. So what's your take on Mildred Pierce? Oh, it's one of my favorite movies. And it's a really great example of um, a film noir that is driven by strong female characters that are interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You have uh, Joan Crawford, who at the time she's again reinventing herself because, you know, a few years earlier she was labeled box office poison and she made this dramatic comeback with the women. And then she um, left MGM and she has this other comeback with Warner Brothers making totally different films, um, including this one, which got her the Academy Award. Um, So, and then in the story, you have this woman who is constantly reinventing herself in order to please her daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was an interesting tie. Like, like this, this, she basically is uh, at first she's a housewife and, um, she, her, her husband basically is having an affair with another woman and she cuts ties off with him. And then she has to start afresh with this new life being a single mother. And her daughter really craves this life of privilege Mm -hmm. and wealth and status that she really can't provide her. So she goes out and, um, makes a career of herself and this is where the creativity aspect comes in for me because she is this enterprising woman she's resourceful she's um creative she um she manifests opportunities that's one of the reasons yes that's I just love that about her character like for example when she's going out looking for a job 
she has no experience because no. she's only ever been a housewife, but she's absolutely determined. And then when she's at Eve Arden's diner and she sees that Eve Arden is overwhelmed because there's not enough waitresses, she's like, Eve Arden's like, what do you, what, what would you like? And she was going to order a tea, but she's like, I want a job. Yeah. So she seizes that opportunity. Um, she learns the business. She, she, and she's hardworking. She's, she basically, everything she achieves is through like sheer will and determination. So it's yes. not just that she's working as a waitress. She mm-hmm. is learning the ins and outs of the business, collecting all this knowledge. Then, um, and it's interesting because she is navigating through of like the patriarchy in this, because there's yeah. three really important men who I like to, I like to think of it as, She's navigating um, like a shark infested waters because these three guys are all kind of sharks in their own ways. <laughs> They're different levels of trash, basically. Yes. Yeah, it's like low, medium, high. Yeah. Yeah. You have her her first husband who yes. just like was having this affair with another woman um, because of like that neglect or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and then you have um, Jack Carson's character who's like this mm. businessman lawyer who is trying to sleep with her, but yes. she uses him to her advantage. She really and, does. And becomes like a partner, like a business partner with him to start this new chain of restaurants, which makes her very wealthy and successful. And mm-hmm. then, then you have, um, then you have the last shark who is Monty played by Zachary Scott, who is just like the, he's the epitome of privilege and status that Vita really wants Vita play by yes. end of life. Um, and it's in a way she's acquiring him in order to give her daughter access to that world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's super interesting how she uses her kind of like creativity to really get into this world of being a businesswoman in a time where it's not really um, like the pathways for that are not really open. She has to be very creative and Mm -hmm. resourceful and really use the men in her life to her advantage. Um, And Vita's like, it's the total opposite. She feels like she deserves things. And the biggest, the biggest downfall for Mildred is that she wants to please her daughter and her daughter is just evil. (laughs) She's such a bitch. Yes. I mean, she's She's absolutely terrible. And she feels like she deserves wealth and status but she doesn't want her mom to work for it yet that's really the only way mm-hmm. that her mom can actually give her those things yeah and what I think is interesting about Veda's creativity which is different from Mildred's is that she so so one of the things that she um expects from growing up is she in a life of privilege is yeah. singing lessons um, playing the piano, learning French. She she feels that these are parts of um, of her like basically presence in the society that would mm-hmm. make her worthy of this world. Yeah. Um, and then when Mildred Pierce kicks her out for that horrible thing she does to that guy who she was trying to acquire for her yeah. own privilege, that wealthy <laughs> young man, she's like, I'll marry him so I can get his other access into yes. yeah. this world. She So this is what I think. She weaponizes her creativity. She mm-hmm. had all those private singing lessons that her mom gave her she has access to jack carson who i guess owns this nightclub and then she becomes a lounge singer knowing full well that her mom will hate it (laughs) 
<laughs> she really does. She knows which buttons to push, kind of like with everyone and their loved ones, which is why it's really like the worst when you get into a fight yes. with like your best friend or your family. They know you so well. They know mm. immediately like how to take it from a zero to a 10 and which buttons to push. And Veda yes. does that through the whole movie. Yeah, yeah no, she knows exactly how to manipulate her mother. And her and Mildred Pierce, like her biggest downfall is her personal relationships. It's the relationship it really she has with her her oldest daughter, who, which becomes at the expense of her youngest daughter, who unfortunately, you know, has a tragic incident yeah. and passes away. Um, but also like her second husband, Zachary Scott's character, you know, like they bleed her dry of all of her money oh, yeah i know <laughs> they're the biggest weakness she has if she didn't have them she'd be this she'd be this like multi-millionaire <laughs> she really would it's kind of the dichotomy of she's so confident and cool and calm in business but in her mm-hmm. personal life um she's like a floor mat and people yes. walk all over her, which was of the time like you know the men were in charge uh in the household and that kind of thing there's always been a controversy with people like um, talking about her relationship with Vita, which is like, how can this smart woman be mm. that blind when it comes to her daughter? And I think sometimes that does happen with people. It's a little extreme, I will admit. I mean, there are times earlier on, especially where you're like, how is she not, you know, I mean, she doesn't have the slap her around the world happens later. Um, actually, no, that is early in the movie. But there, no, there's two slaps. There's the slap right. that like um, Anne Blythe. Uh, well, Anne Blythe slaps her when yes. she rips up the check. But That's then right. earlier, Mildred Pierce like slaps Wallace her, and yes. I forget the reason why. But there's two big slaps. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. I always think of that first slap, and you're like, "Whoa!" Like yes. you feel it almost. Uh, but you're right. Anne Blythe does, yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things where you're watching, and you're like, "I don't believe in you know corporal punishment, but slap that girl, man." Yeah. But um, but yeah, it is very stressful when you're watching Mildred, and you just want her to stand up for herself with this horrible man she's with mm. and which one of the three i mean well okay well she does stand up against yes. jack carson because she does. jack carson yes. is like basically trying to like you know People he makes these minutes. really overt moves and you're just worried that he's gonna like attack Try her yeah. physically you know and yeah. um she puts it off but then she uses it to her advantage yes. not like she doesn't sleep <laughs> with him she doesn't have to sleep with him she just no. knows that he loves business and that he's really kind of attached to her and that she could use that in yes. a way to build her empire. I know. Yeah. It's very femme fatale, the way it begins, where you mm. think like Mildred is one kind of character because she sort of corners him in her house and locks him in there with a dead body. And it's just like classic. Uh, that would be the end of, you know, like a body heat or something where, you know, you're trapping the guy and getting away with murder or talking him into murder or what have you. And so you go in thinking Mildred is that kind of character mm-hmm. and then it's a complete 180. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've watched this so many times that like, yeah. I forget that that's really the first experience you get when you watch this going yes. in, not knowing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen it so many times that, that I didn't even think of that, but that totally makes sense. Have you read the book? Because that's one I've always wanted to read and I never have. I have not, but I really want to because I've had yeah. some good experiences reading 
the film, the, the actual noir novel and then watching the film noir. Like I did that with The Postman Always Rings Twice and oh, the yes. book and the Can't movie again. are just like, it's really interesting to see what they could and couldn't do with the movie version. So I'm really curious about this book. Yeah, especially because there are some big differences. Um, what do you think of the Todd Haynes remake? Did you watch that one? No, but I just got HBO Max, so okay. I have it on my list to watch. And I love Kate Winslet, so. <laughs> I remember, I mean, it's very different. It's more loyal to the book from what I've been told. Uh, um, it is slower, I'll warn you. I mean, it is Todd Because it's a miniseries, right? Yes, but I actually remember thinking it was really gorgeous and being, yeah. like, completely drawn in. Totally different experience, of course. I mean, I prefer the Joan Crawford one, but I thought it was pretty worthwhile. Yeah. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. So this is such a good performance from Joan Crawford. And I guess it was one that Betty Davis turned down this uh, role. Actually, a lot of actresses turned it down because they didn't want to appear as they were a mother of a 16-year-old Yes, I read that. That's so crazy. Yeah. But Joan Crawford was in a time where she's reinventing herself again. Mm -hmm. So she's willing to take this on, which I think is really interesting. And it paid off like... And totally. it's really interesting in the film, she reinvents herself even in the very final scene when she's yep. walking out the like out of the police department. Um, and she and her and Bruce Bennett, Joan Crawford and Bruce Bennett are in this archway, and then you see the end come. Yeah. I mean, you know that there's like a whole new journey that she's on. So yep. this is like Joan Crawford just seems like the perfect person because she was kind of on this journey, and then her character is on this journey of reinvention. So it totally makes sense. I think it really does. Yeah. She's constantly evolving, always different and always getting a little bit more knowledge and a little more realization to who her daughter is. And yeah, that, and it's such a heartbreaker. It's a gorgeous film. It's Oh, the light, the use of light and shadow is amazing, especially in that pivotal scene towards the end where like characters are coming in and out of of the shadows yeah, and um, how light is used to kind of reveal people and reveal what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Just very great. Like anyone who loves film noir will just eat those details up. They're great. Yeah, textbook noir. And you can really see how people like the Coen brothers watched this and then probably rewatched it like a dozen times. And yeah, and took that into Blood Simple and some of their other films. Yeah, I was so excited for you to choose this movie. I was like, yes. So I know, and this is a different form of creativity. Yeah. I mean, when I was I thinking think of creativity, works. I really love um, how people navigate their lives to open opportunities for themselves mm-hmm. and to see what they do, because that's a different form of creativity. It's like, it's like, how can you imagine a new life for yourself? Um, and what do you have to do to get to that point? And just how people do that really fascinates me. Yes. Um, and this is what, like a, just a great example of um, just watching somebody go on that journey, like to really change their situation. They get out of a situation and her motivation is just really unique too. Yeah, absolutely. And the movie is timeless, not only because it deals with um, a mother-daughter relationship, mm-hmm. But also for exactly the reason you just stated. I mean, I remember this was back in the 90s, early zeros, where they talked about um, your average adult is going to need to change careers like seven times, five to seven, Mm -hmm. I think was the exact numbers they were giving. 
And so that is something that Joan Crawford does in this movie. She's constantly having to work with new information, almost going completely bankrupt, trying to figure things out. And that's an experience and um, a life that a lot of people can relate to today. So I think Mm -hmm. this is a really great choice. And this movie, I think, will continue to be timely no matter what year it is. Yeah, really. It's I mean, you could place this story. It doesn't have to be in the 40s. It could really be any era. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the situations would have to be a little different in terms of like what business it is. Yeah. Vita's motivations and things like that. Mm -hmm. But you could transform the story into any era um, because all of those elements still exist you know like those like how family can be toxic how um you know romantic relationships can be toxic and how sometimes you have to pull yourself by the bootstraps and really like assert make changes Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah absolutely well there any other uh joan crawford movies you'd like to recommend anyone listening or others of this type maybe not starring joan crawford that you'd like to give a shout out to um, I mean, I really love Joan Crawford in The Women. I mean, she's like oh, also she's, she's so like, good in that. Yeah, she's a terrible character in that. In terms of like, she's kind of the villain the flip in side. it, but yes. it's gr- it's a great villain character, and she yes. really kind of steals the show from the other women in in certain respects. Yeah, yeah. like she has I mean, the most fun role, I think. Yes, yes, it's just she's got that great line at the end, like um um it was uh there's a word for you ladies, but isn't used in society outside of a kennel (laughs) (laughs) and that's that great way that um uh, that's like the women is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time Mm -hmm. and it it has such rapid fire dialogue like you there's so many really great witty lines and you have to watch it more than once to pick all them up because they just come really fast and then the cast is stunning it's all women even mm-hmm. the animals in the beginning are all like female animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have such a great cast and she's just fantastic in it. Um, and I just think it's really interesting, like her career, just going from like the flapper film she made in the twenties and yeah, then the coats in the thirties. And then, um, and then how it completely shifts when she gets to the 40s and and um, goes to Warner Brothers. Yeah. And then she she wasn't like later on in her career, she wasn't scared to do melodramas and horror movies. And um, no. I just think like what happened to Mary Jane is it like am I getting the name right? Oh my goodness. Um the with Betty Davis and um Joan Crawford. Mm-hmm. Um I just think it's super interesting oh, how Jane. yeah. Baby Jane, sorry. Yeah. Oh, um, I was getting that name wrong. It took wrong. me a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever happened to Baby Jane, I think it's really interesting that both Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were not scared to really um, step it. out of their comfort. So, I mean, Betty Davis always was about, like, physical transformation. She was yes. not scared of that. But this was a, these were two roles that, you know, were were ones that actresses of their age would not have taken or actresses mm-hmm. who like came up during the, during the golden age of Hollywood would not, but they were not scared to take on something like that. So it just, it's interesting how Joan Crawford's career over the years just transforms. And I have to recommend if anyone um, wants to hop onto YouTube, Alicia Malone for TIFF um, Toronto International Film Festival in 2018. does this great like retrospective on Joan Crawford's career Ooh, from the very beginning nice. to um, 
around the time where she retired from films and she goes through all of the like the stages of her career and she does it so eloquently so I would just look up Alicia Malone and Joan Crawford. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, I highly recommend it. She just says, she just like goes through, it's almost like a, like a biography of just her career. So if you, oh, if cool. anyone wants to learn more about how Joan Crawford kind of evolved over the decades of her um, acting career, it's really interesting. And this is so perfect because Kate Gabrielle chose a stolen life with Betty Davis. So in this episode, you'll be hearing about both Joan and Betty and what can be better than that. Oh, yes. yes. Two greats. <laughs> exactly. Well, I want to thank you so much, Raquel, for doing this. It was so great talking to you. Thank you. This was great. Well, next up from the Classic Film Collective, we have two girlfriends on the wonderfully feminist 1978 film Girlfriends, about two 20-something creatives an aspiring photographer played by Melanie Mayron and a writer played by Anita Skinner, whose friendship is put to the test when Skinner announces her intent to move out and marry her boyfriend played by Bob Balaban. Here to talk about it are two writers whom avid listeners have heard before on Watch with Jen, Jill Blake and Mariah E. Gates. So welcome back, ladies. I would love to hear more about what made you choose this very special movie and how you relate to it yourselves as women seeking a creative or artistic outlet in 2021. Let's see, going alphabetically, and because I know it is new to her, Jill, let's start with you. <laughs> Talk to us about Girlfriends. So I uh, chose this movie because Mariah and I were talking about what we could, well, the whole concept of this was uh, with the Classic Film Collective, and it's all art created by women. We decided that, okay, well, let's look at films that depict creative women. And so I was thinking about what to do and I'm talking to Mariah and we were saying how fun it would be for us to do this together. And she was like, we need to do girlfriends. And so, and I, and I owned the film, um, but I hadn't watched it yet. Um, just hadn't for no mm -hmm. particular reason. And uh, I was like, all right, sure. So I watched it to prepare for this podcast. I absolutely loved it. It has, um, all the things I love, which is Bob Balaban and Christopher Guest. Yes. And um, Mariah had kind of tipped me off to some nudity. Um, <laughs> and so, which is really weird for me to be like, woo, hot Christopher Guest ass. But, you know, like that's where I'm at in this stage of my life right now. Um, but I, you know, I loved the, I love, I, I loathe New York City, but I love okay. movies in the 70s set in New York. Yeah. Um, so this, uh, you know, was, uh, was uh, released in 1978. The fashion is great. There's so many tall leather boots and mid-length skirts. Um, the hair is big. The glasses are bigger. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 yeah, I love all of that, that whole vibe. Um, I love the complicated friendship aspect between um, the two main characters, um, yes. which of course I'm like crapping out on their names right now. Um, Anne and um, Susan. Susan. Yes. And, um, and how it's like, they, they're very different, but they, it, it just re it reminds me of my own friendships with, with other uh, girlfriends that I have. 
and have had and kind of the ups and downs of those relationships as you kind of diverge on where your life is headed at a certain point. Um, And then in terms of just the creative with Susie, how hard it is to get your work appreciated and to make a living at it Um, and how cutthroat that world is and really how she literally, I mean, she is, she finally gets the confidence to just go in and, and just do like, try to get a cold call meeting with this big, you know, um, uh, curator, Mm -hmm. a gallery owner. And, um, and it, (laughs) you know, this whole business in entertainment, it's all about who, you know, I mean, even jobs that I've gotten, um, and I'm sure this, the same is for Mariah. I know a lot of it is, yeah, it's your talent, but you also have to have the ability to break through and have these moments where someone goes, you know what, I'm going to give you a shot. And it's not necessarily something that is put out there an open call. Right. And so that, um, I love that moment. It's a little, you know, maybe it's a little, um, maybe not as realistic that you barge into some man's office and <laughs> then he makes yeah. a call immediately to, to help you out. But I, I did like that component. Um, you know, I, I like that it was kind of, we kind of go through probably what two, three years um, is the time lapse here on this movie, I guess. And, but we don't really know how long um, the only indication is like, we see, you know, her roommate uh, is pregnant, but we never see an expanding belly. And the next thing you know, the child's crawling around on the floor. So we know that there's been probably two years past. So I do like that. There's kind of this, it it all almost feels like the same day to the way that it's shot and edited. Um, But I, uh, I don't know. I think it, it, it's like, just a snapshot, I guess, of life and like normal things. No explanations are given. Um, there's a lot of weird, quirky moments. Like I was texting Mariah about when she, uh, when Susan finally gets to have her work in this gallery and like the gallery owner has like a neck brace and her <laughs> assistant has, has a, neck a neck brace. brace. Like, like w- why? And it's hilarious. Like what's the, like, what was that about? You know, so um, I like these little unexplained weird moments that would totally happen in normal really? life. Yeah. yeah. So um, and I feel like I've been in situations like that. You're like, what the hell is going yeah, on? And what's even or not? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the fact that Susan d- seems like completely unfazed by it, too, you know. <laughs> so um, I just I, I thought it was sweet and funny and um had a very 70s ending (laughs) i was like wait did the disc just like skip or was that a freeze frame (laughs) it was a freeze frame (laughs) i loved it so a lot of fun very cool had you seen other movies by the filmmaker no no No? this was a this was a first um a first for me so wonderful and Mariah, I know it's one of your favorites. There are so yeah. many movies I I like put with your name, of course, like <laughs> the Age of Adeline, Crossing Delancey, and Girlfriends are a couple that just spring to mind right now. But there's so many others that I always get excited and think, oh, Mariah loves that. And 
I was very eager to talk to you about it. Yeah, this is when I discovered um, when I worked at Warner Archive Collection and I was a big fan of Francis Ha and Matt Patterson, who used to be the marketing manager at Warner Archive Collection, was like, oh, you got to see Girlfriends because Warner Archive originally put out a a disc of of this. And so I, I, yeah, and so I watched, I actually have it on the Warner Archive and the Criterion disc, um, (laughs) you know, because uh, I own a lot of things where I buy the usually directed by women and then Criterion puts out a version and I'm like, dang it, I already bought this. Like I bought Smooth Talk and then like three Same. months later or whatever, they were like, oh, Smooth Talk. And I'm like, dang it, why did I buy the Kino DVD? Um, but thank you, Kino. Um, so I watched it and I was like, holy shit, like this is definitely the blueprint for everything Lena Dunham mm-hmm. did, like everything Francis, like um, Greta Gerwig has done. Many other women have clearly been inspired by this film and including the way she made the film. She shot it over weekends over several years. And I think that's part of that organic shooting is why the the th- three years or so that the film takes place feels so organic because it literally was three years. Yeah. <laughs> like she that was, explains she was like, oh, we got to <laughs> we got to just make it be several years because it's taking several years to make it. Um, but I found I came to this movie when I was in my late 20s, right when. Frances Ha was about the same age as me. I think Greta Gerwig's a year older than me or two years older than me. And um, uh, it resonated with where I was in my life trying to sort of figure out, you know, like I sold out really early and went into marketing for 10 years. (laughs) And clearly, you know, that I'm not doing that anymore. I had spent 10 years really hating working in marketing and now I'm, I'm back to writing. But at the time I was sort of trying to be a writer and, and, not having the best success. And um, I really liked that aspect. I love the first time she sells some of her uh, photographs. She's like, I'm going to get paid. <laughs> like, <laughs> I felt so I felt that. But then she goes to check on them and they've cropped her photo. And having had, um, I have a, a credit on IMDb for a short film. Um, and the plot is the film I wrote, but the film is not the film I wrote. You know what I mean? Oh, um, gotcha. So I I completely understand having something that you create go in the hands of someone else and becoming something else, but your name is what stuck to it. <laughs> like that resonated really deeply. Um, I was telling Jill about how um, I love when she ends up with that random roommate um, that she's like picked up as a, as a hitchhiker. I've never, I've never picked up a hitchhiker, but for, um, the first three years that I lived in LA, I had a couch and I had a lot of people stay on my couch for a lot of different weeks. And, you know, um, I got rid of the couch because not that I dislike people, but it was, I like, you know, in the film, she says, I just want to be alone. It's not about you. I just want to be alone. And I'm like, that's how I feel. So I got rid of the couch so that I would stop offering people my couch um, because if someone needs a place to crash, I'm not going to say no if I have a couch. Yeah. But now that I don't have a couch, I don't offer anymore. Because um, now I don't feel guilty about having a couch and not offering it, which is good. I had um, to have a, I had to have a child to keep people from coming to stay <laughs> with me. Because we live in a two bedroom. So now that we have a kid, like no one shows up. It's great. It's, it's, it's just, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. And I love... Um, I love when the bat, when she's trying to get someone to go to a 10 o'clock movie, like I've no one, I've given up trying to get people to go to movies with me because everyone else has a life and I have a cat and my cat doesn't care <laughs> if I go see a movie. Well, the cat cares, but the cat can't do anything about me going to see a movie at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and then her, just, her power goes out and she's just, she's so frustrated about being alone and having no money and the power <laughs> going out. And I was like, 
why is this me? Um, and I think what is so lovely is that it's one of the first films by a woman about this generation of women who did mm -hmm. live alone. Like there are mm -hmm. certain films in the fifties and sixties about single women, but it's, yeah. they're less um, like, you know, like Sunday in New York is adorable and I adore that film, but it's, it's not really about the struggles of living alone. It's, mm -hmm. it's very right. much romantic comedy and it's very much sort of idealized dating life style, yeah. you know, is the main thing that's going on in that. Well, film. It's, it's, it's all about getting to the next stage, you yeah. know, yeah. like all of those movies are you're single, but not for long or exactly. you're single and something terrible happens to, yeah. <laughs> to you, yeah. you know, like it's yeah. not a, framed as a positive. And, and I think thing. part of that is it was a, it, her generation, Claudia Wales generation is the first generation to really have a bunch of women stay single and, yeah. and not yeah. be spinsters and not be the spinster aunt. Um, and you never know, like, is Susan actually going to commit to this man who gave her a duck at the end of the movie? Yeah. I, I wouldn't well, stay with a man I, who gave me a duck, to be honest. No, but I, mean, asking, I also but like of the conflict. Duck, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but she's <laughs> conflicted, too. It's like she, in terms of. She wants what she had before Anne got married. Like, that yeah. was a perfect arrangement, right? And so she wants to be alone, but she doesn't. And exactly. trying to and trying to figure out the balance of that, you know? So I think, you know, will, will she stay with Eric? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. really matter. But it doesn't really matter. I mean, I think... Uh, but, yeah, being, and, I, and I like that it, do it doesn't... It show one matter. way or the other. She didn't say, yes, I'm going to move in with you and your duck. And no, she but doesn't they've say made, no. But they've made up. I mean, we know that they've made yeah. up and maybe they'll come to some different understanding, but it doesn't matter because by the end of the movie, she's figured out what she doesn't want. Yes. I mean, that's, that was my, my main takeaway is she figured out, I don't want this. What, yes. <laughs> what's going yes. on right here? I do not want that. And she sees Anne who is happy I guess, you know, and well, she's honest with her husband, you know, I love, like, I love Anne. Like, so the main focus is Susan and her photography, but Anne is also an artist and she's this poet, but she hasn't found her voice. She's writing, writing poems that are complete fiction, yeah. you know, and I love that Susan like gives her totally calls hard, her hard out. criticism. Like yes. you, this is not real. Like, like was your mom mean to you? Well, no. no. Did your parents ever fight? No. <laughs> and and getting that feedback like is helpful. Part of the reason yeah. Anne says she wants to go back to school is she needs she needs the criticism to be around and, and to be around other writers. You know, yeah, she's being. I mean, and that's you know that's the one thing that I real you know because for people who don't know, I'm married. I've been married for 20 years. I have a kid. If that sounds like a death sentence to a lot of people, um, this you know, the situation I live in, you know, and with my husband, he is very supportive of me in terms of whatever I need to do. And we have a co-equal relationship and we, you know, we co-parent, we, we uh, split up responsibilities. There are times where he takes on more so I can get something done. I take on more so he can get something done. So it works. I also realized that is even in 2021, that is exceedingly rare. So even in relationships that are supposedly egalitarian, it's not, they still fall into extremely traditional roles. Mm -hmm. um, so when I'm watching this and, and I'm seeing, and like 
her creativity has been completely stifled. She's with, married to this guy who is such a dweeb. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, and like, he's just, oh my God, could he, like, I would rather <laughs> have like elective surgery and watch paint dry and like, oh God, he's like, so anyways, and like the whole, like the coffee is Moroccan, you know, like, oh, <laughs> shut up. I hate you yeah, so he's much. Such a, you, like, he's such an early bougie person. Yeah. He's yeah. such a, he's a, he's like a proto yuppie. Total like yeah. NPR listener. No, I am. Um, so like, Watching that, I go, okay, well, you know, you don't have to give up your dreams to be married. And I mean, it's definitely showing to, mm-hmm. it's showing an extreme, like this, yeah. but then, but then I'm sitting there going, oh God, maybe this is more realistic than I think, <laughs> you know, like maybe what I'm in is the, uh, the exception, you know? Um, but I, that's kind of, it's sad to me that Anne kind of has lost that a little bit. I don't know. That was my one issue. I love the movie, but I wanted to know more about Anne um, Mm -hmm. just a little bit. I mean, Susan is the main focus, but it is called Girlfriends. And it's like you want to know a little bit more about what's going on with Anne. But um, I was interested in hearing your take because I know you just celebrated your 20th anniversary. So happy anniversary. Yeah. (laughs) Were you the first among your friends to get married? And if so, do you remember and were there any issues like did you have a few Susans where the relationship kind of hit the rocks a little bit at the beginning um so we actually so my best friend at the time who who I don't talk to anymore it's a long story but um she didn't get married for several years um and she actually did she was my maid of honor or whatever and she was the bridezilla and because it was all like rooted in jealousy that I was getting married and um but we did have other friends that got married the same year that we did and all of them are divorced Mm. except for us um every single one that that happened to my parents who are about the age of Susan and Anne, they got married right around the same time as all of their friends. It was all graduate from grad school, get married, like at 25 mm-hmm. kind of thing. Gotcha. And they're the only couple still together. Yeah. Now I wow. say, let me, let me yeah. backtrack because my, my very good friend, Aaron, I've, my oldest friend, we went to elementary, middle school, high school together. Um, she and her husband actually started dating when Thomas and I started dating. So oh, they've, okay. and they, but they didn't get married for some years later. So they, they are still together, but that's the only, mm. the only other one. Um, but I had single front. I feel like most of my friends at that time were paired up. And I think probably that's where we lived because we you know growing up in the south like true not so much now especially like in atlanta but you know i grew up in chattanooga tennessee which is kind of a mid-sized city and you just you start parent like it's not a big singleton place Mm -hmm. uh, or it wasn't then now i think had i been living in atlanta or chicago or new york i think maybe I would have been around more singles. Um, 
it just wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, yeah, that just wasn't a, wasn't a thing. Now, once I got into, uh, when we moved, um, for graduate school, we had a lot of single friends and there was definitely, but we were married without kids. So that's kind of like, yeah, I don't don't know. I I mean, I have to think about these three stages in my life. So now being a parent, Mm -hmm. we are like viewed as the like, oh, you can't do anything because you've got this or whatever. I can see where, and so so like our, our married childless friends look at us like those poor sons of bitches <laughs> and then, you know and then but we but then Thomas and I are sitting and looking at all the the um parents yeah. that have more than one kid and we're like death sentence like, like you know so it's you know I, think- I will I will say when I lived in Atlanta of all of the people that I was friends with, I saw Jill and Thomas and their daughter more than anybody, including oh, the that. single people, because I, for one, enjoy other people's children. Oh, I yes. don't, I don't want my own children, but I love yeah. other people's children. Exactly. Um, and and Thomas and and um, Jill are really cool people. I'm just gonna say <laughs> yeah, it. Okay. They're cool people, <laughs> and they're a lot of fun to hang out with. Oh, and well, and they, they have raised the absolute coolest girl I've ever met like oh I wish gosh. I had like I, my pinky wasn't even as cool as, oh, as he is she's, oh. she's well, such a gem I just think like <laughs> it was one of those things that like I think ultimately what it comes down to is that we're both really selfish people <laughs> meaning well no I, but what I mean is like um, when we had Ellie, uh-huh. you know, it was like, I don't want to lose myself. Like, True. I mean, I'm her mom. I am. That is the most important thing ever. Right. But like, sure. I can't identify as just a mom. I mean, I had a life before, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I had a personality. I had things that I, and so there's two time. Ta- and so when I say we're selfish is that we're you know, we know so many parents that like they shed, like the minute they have kids, they shed everything. They shed their interests. They, and yeah, things change. I mean, you know, we can't do whatever we want whenever we want anymore, but that's okay. I mean, we had 10 years together before we had her, you know? So like I was watching this movie and I, and I see I mean, that's also the perils of getting married young and then immediately shitting out a kid because you don't, you don't have that adjustment. And that was the one thing with Thomas. We're like, we're not having kids one day. Yeah. We'll have a kid, but we're not having kids for a long time. And that allowed us to still pursue the things we were interested in and kind of get used to this new life. Right. Before we like screw up and bring like another human into the world, like let's not do that. And then we agreed, like, okay, we have the one, let's not press our luck, <laughs> you know. Plus, plus, you know, I'm selfish and I don't ever want to go through that again, ever again. And that's the other thing with Anne, which I totally texted this to Mariah, is like, you know, she like when she's like, I got an abortion, I couldn't come, I had an abortion. And I have never had an abortion, but 
if I found myself pregnant again, I would, I mean, now I wouldn't, I would tell Thomas and he would like, he would be grabbing the keys to the car so <laughs> fast. <laughs> like, let's get in the car. Let's go. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I mean, I saw that and I go, God, that poor one. Like, I feel that I feel that in me because it is, I mean, I, and I see so many other mothers and I'm like, um, I feel sometimes I feel inadequate because I don't want that. I don't want to have four children and lose every bit of myself. I like myself most of the time and I love having a child. I do, but that's it because I don't want to lose any, I've I've already partitioned off a part of myself for her (laughs) and I love her and I put my focus on her, but I don't want to put my focus on any other child. (laughs) you know if that makes sense it's your personal choice yeah I just yeah I just I so I that really I I know that feeling of the fear of like you're seeing something you know slip away and then having the friend that doesn't have kids go you know like when she said but you were going back to school what do you mean you're pregnant and she was like well it's not like I'm gonna be laying in the bed for nine months but like she says that and it's like she knows it's a lie. She's mm-hmm. not going to be able to go. I mean, you know, nowadays it's easier to do those kinds of things. But in 1978, you're not going to school no. when you've got a baby. It's not happening. It's mm-hmm. just not happening. Um, so that moment where she says it, but she knows the minute it comes out of her mouth, it, it's over. And they keep showing the pic, you know, the shot of her in the house and all the baby shit everywhere. You know, it's like, I've, I get, I know that feeling where you are trying to balance what you want. I mean, you want both things. You want to be a mother. You want to be an artist. Of course. You, You want, you want your friendship with your single girlfriend, but like, how do you find, and I don't know it's hard to find that happy middle there. And if you don't have a partner who is receptive or encouraging and Bob Balaban's character was like, he's just like, he's so uh, clueless about completely clueless. He's not, yeah. He's not a bad guy. No, he's just just clueless. He's just clueless. Yeah. He's no, he's absolutely. I don't think the man would harm a fly. He, he's just, Oh my God. He's so, he's so stupid. He just does not have that. He, no. Now I have a question from Raya thinking about Bob sure. Balaban because you're single as well. And I am, I'm sure you've been in this, well, Jill too. Uh, we've all been in this situation where your friend starts dating someone and they get serious about someone and you just know like this dude, it's, it's not good. Like Jill was mentioning, so, um, so the thing is, I, tell Jill's that? laughing. Jill's laughing because the thing is, I'm that friend that gets in the situations with men oh, that are no. not okay, and then oh, I text no. the friends, and they're like, "Not again!" And I'm like, "I know." And yeah, I, I'm the I, person that I goes, am, "He's trash." Why am, like- yes, yes, I'm the one who emotionally invests in trash men over and over and over again. <laughs> So it's not just the Twitter thread that's like my favorite. No, I, no, the Twitter not. thread is just an honest way of me talking I about. Funny. Oh <laughs> no, my God. it seems it seems funny 
because it is funny, but it's also true. <laughs> okay. Because you seem so like with it. And I'm like, she's, she knows these guys are trash. And I'm like. Absolutely not. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Oh, God, it's done. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Jill Satin still so, knows a lot. so with it. No. <laughs> oh, when it comes to men, I just assumed like a guy walks up to Mariah and it's like a reply guy and Mariah just immediately shuts him down. But yeah. you're telling me, no, it's like, you know. Well, not on, online is a different, I don't, I don't, I don't date reply guys. It's no, always people I meet in. Of, yeah. It's people I meet in person. It's And the, the problem it partly is it's always or often people in Los Angeles and <laughs> people in Los go. Angeles are terrible. Yeah. But, but as Jill well knows, I'm not going to name any names, but m- m- many of these trash men have been relatively like, if you Googled them, you'd find their trash work out in the world. Oh, um, no. Often after, after, you know, like they were tr- trash. And then I was like, okay, we'll finally end this. And then they reveal themselves as trash to the rest of the world kind of stuff, but multiple people that you could Google and their name would pop up. <laughs> I'm oh. so sorry. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh. Good but, times. Uh, are you the, <laughs> in your own life? Obviously there's a, there's a myopia thing going on there, but with your friends though, are you the one that knows that they're dating trash or is it still like, Hey, he seems pretty cool. Most of most of my friends are married. Okay. Actually, I have I have two friends. They know who they are if they're listening. Uh, one of whom <laughs> never dates, and the other of oh, whom God. does also have trash okay. taste. But she knows oh, that she has trash taste. Um, I don't know. I feel like by the time you're in your thirties, I'm going to be thirty five soon. Everyone who's left has either. To Jill's point, gotten a divorce and they're in the like mm-hmm. 30s post-divorce free yeah. for all, or they're like me and they just spent their 20s dating a lot of shit men <laughs> or and women. I'm I'm actually pansexual and oh, I, yes, I have I have trash I have trash chasing women too. So opportunity. this is totally an equality situation. Yeah. I'm just yes. addicted to trash. Yeah. Um so you, you I think by the time you get to this age, you generally like, you know, your t- you know, your flaws if oh, you're, yes. you're, if you're actually reflect self-reflective um, and you know uh, what you shouldn't do. It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that you act on, yeah, of course. on it. Yeah. Um, I would say that like most of our, so Thomas and I, even though we live in this like very hetero, <laughs> married with kids kind of neighborhood, I guess you could say, or at least like, like Ellie's school. Like we don't hang with those people. And so (laughs) the vast majority of our friends, uh, close friends, you know, are either single or gay Um, Mm -hmm. or queer. I should say queer Um, or gay and and married okay queer and single or or, you know so my best friend gay married been married since uh 2008 or like my you know i I mean so that's who i mean we do have other friends that are married and have kids and everything but they're they're like we are Mm. i mean they're you know yeah i don't know i don't say i say you know but i mean um it's just we just we hate all of that like no I we hate the the 
you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. You know, suburban shit. Like that's not our thing. So, you know, the minute that we can, you know, get out and hang out with our cooler friend, you know, like Mariah's like, they're so cool whatever. We're not. We just have to, we like are like hanging out with the, the people who are cooler and hope it rubs off on us. But no, I mean, most of our friends are definitely um, single or, or gay. So, gotcha. you know, we're not hanging out with the boring. So you're kind of the dear Abby of the group, though, a little bit. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I do you're have a lot tell, of friends. You will tell if you're dating trash and you want to know, ask Jill. I do have a lot of friends is what I'm getting. And, you know, I I might bother you now in the future. I don't know why that is, but I've always had um, friends like I'm the I just sit there and go, "Mm -hmm." you know, like there's a lot of uh, listening and and I'll enjoy it. Well, the thing is, you're a really perceptive person about human behavior and cool. so if someone describes the situation to you, you're really good at parsing probably where it's coming from, both from the way I'm telling it, like what, mm-hmm. what, why I'm saying, telling it the way I'm telling it, but also from that story, what the other person is thinking. You're really good at that. That's why people oh. talk to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's that my take nice. anyway. That was nice of you. Yeah. Well, you know, I used to be a, a social worker. And so, I, I mean... That's not like I became a social worker, no, no. but I mean, I have always been a very, um, I guess I'm personable decently. And um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe my mom's a lot like that too. People would confide in my mom. Same. Like my, my friends in Rangers. high school and stuff. Yep. Would, yeah. And my mom's like hairdresser the other day, yep. like was confiding in my mom. She's like, I've never told anybody this like, holy yeah. shit. So I don't, maybe it's just like some genetic thing she gave me. I don't know, but I've always been like that always. Right. And, and That's then wonderful. I was a caseworker and I would, you know, so I was constant. I was like solving, not solving. That's the wrong word, but like I was helping people f- go through very complicated issues that were, you know, make whatever issues that we're going through in our own personal lives look like nothing, you know? So um, the, I guess, natural, whatever natural inclination I had to listening and trying to find a solution for someone, I actually learned legitimate skills on how to navigate really, really difficult scenarios. Yeah. But I don't really, I mean, I'm not like actively thinking that when I'm, if Mariah and I are texting or my other friend, Rachel and I are texting, you know, I just, I guess it's just who I am, you know? So if it, if that's a good trait to have, then, you know, okay. Yay. It's the only one I've got. No, but my mom was the same way. Like growing up, I mean, people would just like hairdressers, exactly what you said. And for whatever reason, I have to like a checkout uh, worker told me that she was worried she might be pregnant. I was like, how are you doing today? Oh, my God, I'm so worried. I might be. And she started to tell me and I, I didn't know. Like, and so I started she like just really wanted to talk to somebody. And so I was there then for 
10 minutes. And you're sitting there going like, like, I've never met her. I'm really going to get this ice cream home. It's going to melt. I know. It was, it was, she was like 20 years old and I just, yeah. So it was kind of heartbreaking. I was not a social worker. I was a peer mediator and a peer counselor. So sometimes like when my friends were fighting, I was like the girl in the middle, like, well, tell Joan that, you know, and it's like, (laughs) I don't want to do that. No, but, um, but yeah, no. So it's funny. Sometimes there are those things that moms pass down, I guess, a little bit of strangers will confide in you. And that's what I really loved about this movie is that, you know, Susan, at least at the beginning is kind of the, you know, she's kind of giving, you know, we were talking about the, the criticism of um, Anne's poetry or whatever, you know, but also it seemed like she was giving Anne a little or helping Anne find her confidence, you know, but then like, look at how much Susan was struggling with herself. So that's the other Mm -hmm. component here is that I saw myself in both characters a lot. Um, because there are times when like oh yeah so like I don't and I don't voice my worries as much like that's and that's just me it's not because I don't have people to talk to it's just my person like I will listen and listen and listen and then I don't and then usually what happens is one day I just can lose it and people are like what's wrong with you (laughs) you know know? I mean um I, I promise I'm not going to pull an Alan Arkin in uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Um, but uh, <laughs> it just got dark. <laughs> but um, <laughs> poor guy, he's just like, he's got no choice but to just listen to people. Like, <laughs> and then he's like, ah! Anyways, um, no, but, uh, you know, Susan's got like, she's got her own conflicts and I don't know if she has the same level of support or maybe the relationship with Anne is not as reciprocal. I don't know. Like she needs Anne, but it just feels like a different dynamic. I don't know, Mariah, what do you think about that? Yeah. I Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. I I think part of what, um, and it's similar in Francis Ha. It's one of the elements I think Greta lifts really well from the film in her film is that um, that the dynamic isn't just that they're comfortable with each other and challenging each other. The reason I think it focuses on Susan and the reason Greta focuses on Francis is that that those characters are the more independent one, quote unquote, because they're living on their own, but Hmm. they are so dependent on, not completely dominating, but slightly dominating their friend. Yeah. Um, in both in both ones, they're they're always very critical. Like people will compliment, um, specifically in, in Frances Ha, people will compliment. Um, I'm forgetting her friend's name all of a sudden, but they'll compliment her. You know, because she's like, got a publishing degree or, or career or whatever. And Frances is always like, she doesn't even read. Um, you know, like yeah. she yeah. she and 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 Frances loves to like hoard it over her friend that she's actually smarter she's just not as... it's almost a sibling dynamic yeah. too i mean that's yeah. that's what we're getting here is that you can be brutally honest but um i guess having you know that cl- the, yeah and having that close relationship entitles you to those privileges to be brutally honest you know like in yeah. a way that you yeah. can't be with a casual acquaintance and then in in girlfriends she sort of 
starts to fill that need to be slightly more superior yeah. with her, with the woman that she ends up being the assistant to. And then she's like, right. Aha, I'm, you know, I, don't, I can't work for you anymore. I have a show. And the, the assistant is just like, what? Um, but then she offers to help her get a right. show also. And it's like that Susan is just one of these characters that always likes to have a little bit of power over people uh, in situations yeah. and doesn't know how to sort of live when she's not, the top dogs. The same thing right. I think with with Eric. Eric challenges her when they're making the they're mashed pretty, potatoes. The way to, I mean, the way to make mashed potatoes. Like they they both I like to challenge pretty, each other. I think they're pretty yeah. equally matched, which is mm-hmm. why I think that maybe they'll find a way. I mean, again, not the point, but like he does challenge her in a way that I don't even think Anne challenged her. So yeah, yeah. you know, so maybe we are seeing her. I don't want to use the, I don't want to say mature because that implies that you have to pair up with someone in order to, you know, but I do think she maybe is finding the right combination of where she can have that control, but also get it right back, you know? So I don't know. And I don't think that it's, I mean, obviously she and Anne have repaired their relationship. It's just, going to be different there's there's no way Mm -hmm. and that's okay yeah you know that's okay and I think maybe Susan she finally figures that out you know it can't be the same it's impossible for it to be the same Um, exactly but it yeah I mean and even if Anne didn't get married I mean at some point just relationships change and change yep and yeah and sometimes um you know you you go through it and you can still hang on to those people. But I can't tell you how many times in my life, you know, I talk about the seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are people that enter your life and exit your life all the time. And it's not that you had a falling out. It's not that you, Oh yeah. You know, and it, it's just someone is there for a little bit and then something, something changes. And, and, and I think, I think it's particularly difficult with, friends that were your friends in college, which is what I yes. is implied with with these characters mm-hmm. and definitely in Francis Ha. Um, because you do a lot of your growing um yep. in college and those people and you spend a lot of time, especially if you lived in the dorms with them, you spend a you have, you know, the, you probably make more memories. I, I know I made more memories in the four years with the people I was friends with in those four years than in the 15 years since I graduated. Mm-hmm. Um but I I don't a lot of the people that I have so many intense memories with I don't actually talk to anymore where like Facebook has sort of like latched latched us together forever and I see their updates and things and and part of me longs to for the closeness that I had with some of these people Mm -hmm. um but I realized that they're not the same people that they were and and I can't have like I can cherish what I had with them and be happy that they are thriving but I'm not gonna have that same friendship but then What's interesting now, which wasn't necessarily possible in the 70s unless by chance, is that other people that were acquaintances in college that I didn't have really intense friendship with are now my good friends. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I talked to some some of these people that I I have known them as long as some of these other people, but I didn't know them as well. I talked to way more than the people that I was super close friends with. And Mm -hmm. that's a that's a whole nother weird thing all together because I'm like wait a minute who you know I was always one of those people that kind of like ranked friends based on this is going to sound ridiculous but I ranked friends based on like 
if they would be a bridesmaid or not. I mean, I don't intend to get married, but that was how I would think about things. Um, yeah. Probably because I watched a lot of marriage movies in the 90s. And, and um, that was drilled of, into our head. It really I mean, was. It really, it really was. was. And and most of the people that would have been my maid of honor or bridesmaid or whatever. You in, don't talk to them anymore. In 2008. I don't know what they're doing yeah. with their life anymore. It's yeah. it's very weird. Um I mean the 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 the, pe- the the women I had as my uh, my uh, bridesmaids. One's my sister in law, so I've got no choice there. <laughs> and um, the other one is my friend Aaron, who we've. I mean, we are not. I say we're not close in that we can pick up where we left off, I and mean, we've known Ooh. each other since we were eight years old. There I mean, so and she lives in San Francisco. She, her family still is out here, so she comes home. We see each other, and it's like nothing changed. Of course, we've changed, but we—it's just like seeing a relative. I mean, it's—it's—we're not in each other's lives daily, but it's. It's a, like it naturally changed and yeah. we changed with the relationship, but she, and then Sean, who I've known um, since I was 14 years old, those are the only two friends, you know, that, that I still have from the tons of friends I had in, in high school and college. So, um, and so when I look at my bridesmaids, I had five of them. So it's my sister-in-law and it's, uh, Aaron and two of them one of them my maid of honor you know she's a vile racist and I told her to get out of my life and so I Mm -hmm. you know haven't talked to her in 13 years and uh one of the other friends I don't know where the hell she is and then one I just reconnected with uh, you know a couple years ago on Facebook wow so and these people are in my wedding photos the only only time I was in a I was a bridesmaid was um this friend she almost got married twice i'm really glad she didn't marry the first guy he was actually terrible but um the second time the first time she was going to get married i was supposed to be her maid of honor because i was still living i was during the recession i was living in my hometown and i was like okay but i don't support this marriage <laughs> like i can't be the maid of honor and then i thankfully i went to grad school and she broke got out of that relationship married somebody else much nicer guy um but i ended up still having to be a bridesmaid <laughs> in this wedding and and like she was my best friend growing up she was my lived two houses down small town i i don't know her anymore she doesn't yeah. know me she thinks she knows me i hope she's not listening oh. she thinks she knows me and always hops in and i'm like you literally have yeah. no idea who that's I a am. whole other i mean you know thomas and i were just talking yesterday you know you know it's insane we've been together for 23 years we've been married for 20 and we're the same, but we're not like when we look, when we look back at who we were then, I don't, I can't recognize that person in a good way, you know? And it's, so it's like, I, I think the key here is that, you know, we, you can't change you, you you say that some people never change and that's true. There's some people that are just really awful or whatever, but I mean, but we do, we all, it's natural and normal that as we are affected by things that happen in life, like we do change and there may be like a, you know, a core belief or, you know, what political leanings or, you know, whatever that those tend to kind of, uh, you know, um, get firmed up 
in your, you know, twenties or whatever, but life experiences change you. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it is possible to find one or two people that you are close to that as you go through these life changes that, yeah, okay. Your relationship changes, but the fundamentals are still there and you guys kind of grow together. And I think that's represented very well here and the growing pains of that. Yeah. So like the, the feeling left behind, you know, cause I did, you know, I did have, um, you know, when I was getting married, you know, the woman who was my maid of honor, she was, she was bitter. I mean, I look back on that now and her behavior, she was bitter because she was unhappy. She was jealous. Mm-hmm. All the men she dated. I mean, Mariah, you talk about trash men. <laughs> this, she like your like taste in these trash men look like they are the nicest guys <laughs> ever. Like her taste was just complete. It was abysmal, absolutely abysmal. And she knew it. Right. And so mm-hmm. like jealous that she's with shitty men, um, saying cruel things to me, um, you know, in a very critical way, but not, it, it was coming out of a place of hurt. And so I saw this in this, in between the relationship between Susan and, and Anne. And I think that, yeah, things are going to change, but maybe this is the big bump in their relationship. And mm-hmm. now they've come onto the other side of it and they know that it's changed, but maybe they're even closer than before. Yeah. Um, if they can survive that, you know, um, kind of moment of truth that they, they have when they have their little um, falling out. Um, That's an yeah. Yeah. So I did love that. I mean, to me, that was like, re- like I got really emotional when they had their fight and then had their kind of like, I've, been through that moment. I think a lot of us have at some point with a friend, you know, and then, and then again, talking about the, the seasons of people coming in and out of your life, the first time that happens or the first few times that happens, it's, it can be jarring. It can be really upsetting because Mm -hmm. you wonder, did you do something or, but then when you realize that it really it is normal for that to happen, but also those people weren't necessarily like they gave you something at the time, but now you don't need it anymore. You know, like you're okay with it. Um, Yeah. I think that's part of, and that's just part of growing older. And I think that's a lot of your twenties is, you know, when you're trying to figure out who you are and what you're going to do, you know, I don't know. Yeah. That makes sense. And it's brilliantly reflected in the movie. I was so glad you guys chose this one. I actually hadn't seen it since like, well, I watched it once after I bought it on Warner archive, but it had been so many years. I first discovered it in film school. So it was kind of cool to watch it now because I'm Mm -hmm. turning 40 next week. Oh my God. Ah, Welcome to the club. It's so great to be 40. So it was a little jarring to look back at, you know, think about your early twenties when I first saw this movie and what I was going through then, like Mariah was talking about where it's like, you're trying to make it or what am I doing? And 
So it was really cool to be able to watch this with um, all those different spheres kind of going on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah, talking plus, about it with you. And plus, you know, Christopher Guest completely. Yep. We also in the buff. I feel yes. like we would do the film a disservice if we don't mention that Susan ends up having a huge crush on a 50 some odd year old Eli Wallach. That one that he finally gets to play Jewish instead of like any other ethnicity. I, you know, as someone who like my two tastes are basically like trash trash men heterosexual women and and like 50 to 60 year old people who are way too old for me those are my those are married my, and married yeah those I mean. are my prevalent <laughs> I, I i feel that um and i would probably have similarly hit on eli wallach in that situation so i that, i appreciated that they showed that i appreciated yeah. that when she tells it to and she's a little like She's less shocked about how old he is and more shocked about that it's a married man. Married which I thought man. was, yeah, I thought was nice. Um, but I like that it shows well, it's that, a like, threat. She's, I mean, she's being threatened. Very. Even true. though it's not, I mean, it's it's a threat to her. Like as a, fact, as a married woman. As a married woman, like you're gonna, you could break this marriage. I mean, she's on the defensive in that, and she's being very she's like don't do this but but she's coming at it from a defensive mm-hmm. so it almost makes you think like is she suspecting this you know or is she, she just has a different perspective had she not been maybe she would have been different about it had she not been well, married I honestly I, I hadn't thought of her as being defensive because I'm not married and I would never have thought of that so I completely agree I think that because I have layer, been that that's a layer that I would not uh, I being the Susan here would not have got I have so been go. the married woman listening to the friend <laughs> talking about the affair with the married man oh no. and me going it, it, being defensive in that if I were in the position that this other woman is in I would kill you yeah <laughs> so, so you know like don't do it. And also whatever he's telling you is a lie. Don't listen. Stop it. I also had a married friend, a married friend, have an affair with another married man. So like, and that (laughs) was like, that was so bad. And well, his wife, he, she doesn't understand him. And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) shut up. That is the oldest line. Don't know. She doesn't understand. She's so mean and cruel. And I'm like, "Mm, okay, you know, (laughs) bought it, you know, but no, that, that, um, yeah, I was watching that going, ah, you know, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I had to say, it's good. She's totally defensive. I love the way that they show it, her kind of realizing that the version of him that she's flirting with is not the full picture no. until she meets no. the teenage boy family. and then she meets the wife and you can tell that the wife is like a wonderful person just yes. from the three I mean, lines such a record and... such a record scratch like yes. i Ugh. ice cold water Ugh. is poured on that and it's <laughs> yeah. so it's so sad too like and it was uh, her one it was the one thing that she was like clinging to in her life yeah she was kind of at bottom and it was like hey i have yeah. eli wallach and no. Well, it's there. They have, I mean, you know, I think the assumption is that it was it a wedding or a bar mitzvah that they a, were at 
bar mitzvah when the bar mitzvah and and you know she well but when she's obviously drunk Mm -hmm. and they you know have this moment where they're you know she's talking about you know how her grandparents were orthodox and how her grandfather was talking to god and and she talks about how she thought about being a rabbi at nine and so they have this weird it's a it's almost like it's definitely a father daughter vibe that kind of crosses into flirtation which is a little odd but i've been in that situation i was gonna say paternalistic flirtation is totally a thing especially at that age and when you're you're sort of you know i'm just thinking about grad school um well you need somebody to listen (laughs) to you and to and and to not treat and and that's the thing is he's paternalistic but he doesn't treat her like a child yeah so Mm -hmm. like he he validates everything she's saying. So she's getting like that, you know, mature ear to listen to her, but he's not, he's not patronizing of her at all. But also I'm like, you motherfucker, (laughs) taking advantage of the, like, and then when he kissed her, I was like, when he first kissed her, I was like, Oh, that was just a, that was just like a, you know, a rabbi, kiss and then like they kissed again and I was like okay hang on a minute <laughs> wait, wait a minute um this just escalated <laughs> oh my god <laughs> which I was kind of down with it though I, I mean like strangely I was like hmm, we'll see where this goes I'd like to- <laughs> yeah I I just think all the different little threads that um the director manages to mm-hmm. to string out like they're just I think they're really honest about struggles and, and high and low points in, in like 20 something womanhood that I don't know had really been represented before. Like mm-hmm. how many, True. how many times do you, you have a little affair like that in an older movie and it ends up with someone dead. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, or she would, have been, she would have been pregnant and he would have been like denied, you know? Yeah. yeah it would, it would end really badly. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. There's no tragedy. Exactly. Yeah. There's no tragedy. It's just well, the only blip. tragedy is her. She has that moment of heartbreak, but it's not necessarily that he broke her heart. It's just that she realizes that's unattainable or that's yeah. not, but I want to mention one more thing too, is the, is the red wall. And I love the red wall. I want a red wall so bad. She, you know, when they move into this new apartment and they're talking about what they're going to do to the space, she and Anne, and, and she's talking about painting this wall red and, and Anne's like, mm, I don't, yeah, I don't know about that. And then when Anne says she's getting married, I mean, that's, that's the first thing she does is paint that wall red. And I love that there's, I mean, that wall is chewed to hell. I mean, there's like a big old hole in it. There's like, <laughs> she doesn't patch it. So no. it's, it's, it's definitely the, um, I'm trying to think of another, it's the, um, you know, eat, you know, get a tub of ice cream and eat out of it. I mean, that's what that is, is the frustrated, depressed, but I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want. I love that. And I mm-hmm. love that we didn't see her get out a tub of ice cream and sit on the couch and eat it and eat away her sorrows. Like she's actually doing something proactive to make the space hers. So I, I love that. And I've had similar moments like that where 
do something really drastic and half-ass it, which is her painting (laughs) over a hole, literally painting over a hole. And then she even goes back over it like three times. And I'm like, you gotta patch it. It's not not gonna. So I loved that. That was a great sequence too. Patching over a rough hear. You can hear the roller going on and like, there's a lot of paint on that roller. You can like see it almost dripping down the wall. It's, Mm -hmm. I just, I love that. Oh, that was really cool. Good metaphor too for their relationship (laughs) and what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was a great um, way to kick off the weekend talking about girlfriends. I really appreciated it. Girlfriends, squirrel friends. (laughs) it's such a good film i I would also just for listeners if you have criterion channel you can also watch um claudia wheel and um what is her name who did the the laura dern movie oh uh Um, joyce chopra you can watch claudia wheel and joyce chopra's joyce at 34 which is another interesting look at an artist becoming a mother um, it's a beautiful documentary. It's like 40 minutes long or something. It's good. Perfect. And anybody listening that if you want to get married and do all that, you don't have to lose it all. Nope. It is, it is possible. You just have to know what you want and stay firm. But if you want to be single, that's awesome too. You do mm-hmm. what you want to do. Yep. Live the life you want to live. You are in control <laughs> that's my sage that's our new mantra yes yes absolutely yes this is jen johans at filmintuition.com and film intuition on social media and letterboxd and this is watch with jen <laughs>